Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thanks, uh, Veronica. Um, sometimes when uh, we come to God's word, I like to remind myself and, and want to remind you this morning that uh, throughout much of church history and indeed in many places in the world today that people are arrested, uh, even tortured and executed just for possessing this, God's Word. Um, and so I think as we come this morning to, to explore God's Word and dig into it, I just, I just want to remind us of what a privilege it is uh, just to hold this, let alone be able to gather and, and explore it and learn from it together. Um, so in that light, I'm going to pray Uh, And then we're going to continue to explore God's Word together this morning. And so, Father, I thank You for the privilege of Your Word. I thank You that You inspired its authors, that You had it uh, written down and preserved and recorded and compiled together for us, that we have such easy access to Your Word, uh, Your written Word today as, as, as followers of Jesus. And I thank you that we have the privilege uh, here in Australia to um, possess freely your word, um, to, to have it in our homes and uh, even in public spaces and even in hotels, Lord, that your word is allowed to be present. And so, Father, I, I also thank you that uh, we can gather and, and learn from your word without any hindrance, without any fear of, of persecution. Um, But in that space, Father, I I pray that we would not be complacent with your word, um, that the ease of access and the freedom to to possess it and explore it would not make us complacent with your word. And so, Father, as we come to it this morning, I pray that that you would transform our hearts, that that the weight of your word would shape us, would conform us into the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. And so as James reflects in his uh, letter to the church, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't come to your word this morning, look at it and go away without being transformed or changed in any way. And Father, I know that it's, it's your Holy Spirit that can be, is the only one who can effect true change in us. And so as we dig into your word this morning, I pray that your spirit may come and illuminate it and shape us by your word. by your power and by your presence this morning. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so this morning we are uh, continuing to journey through uh, what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, that this section of Matthew's Gospel from Matthew chapter 5 through to Matthew chapter 7, that, that is Jesus teaching his disciples. And, and so last week we, we began that by thinking about what it looks like to be blessed in Jesus' eyes, 
that, that instead of blessed are those that have the biggest house, Jesus actually said, blessed are those that are persecuted for the name of Jesus, that Jesus turns our, our perception of what blessing is upside down. And so this week, though, we, we continue through this sermon, this teaching from Jesus, this discipleship manual uh, for Jesus' followers. And I want to begin by asking you a, a couple questions. I want you to think about what has shaped your understanding of life, faith, God and the universe? What, what has shaped, another way of describing that would be, what has shaped your worldview? What things, who, what, how, when and where has come into your life as a child and as an adult, or whatever stage of life you're up to and what has shaped your understanding of what life means, of what faith means, of what God means, of what the universe is all about? Now, if we've grown up in a church, we might say, well, of course, the church and, and, and the Bible, and, but, but what else has been around that that has shaped the way that you think about the world? Sometimes we're not aware of the, the lenses that we look at the world through. We're not aware of those things that have shaped us, that we just, we just are so shaped by them, we just think that that's the way that everyone understands the world. What has shaped you? Uh, the second question I want us to think about, kind of off the back of that, is what has shaped your thinking about how you should behave in the world? Not just what has shaped your understanding of the world, but what has shaped the way that you think about appropriate uh, behavior, the right kind of way to be and think and act. What has shaped your thinking about that? Again, if you've grown up in a church or been in a church for a long time, you might say, well, the church or the Bible, um, and I'm sure for many of us that, that's, that's largely true, but what else has shaped your thinking about how you should behave and act? The reason I ask those questions is, is you're probably thinking about it and, and it's not that I'm going to judge what shapes you and, and critique it or get the whiteboard out and write them up and score uh, your upbringing um, out of 10. But the thing is that most of us would have gone, well, yeah, I went to church as a kid so I had that kind of scripture input or some of us might go, well, I didn't go to church and uh, my parents were atheists and so, so that shaped my worldview and even though now I believe in God that, that there's some stuff about being an atheist about that, that shapes the way I see the world still. Or, but the thing is for most of us there'd be a bunch of things that shape the way we think about the world and the way we think about how we should behave in the world. But for Israel... It was the law and the prophets. Number one and overruling everything else in Israel, in ancient Israel, in, in the day that Jesus walked the earth, the law and the prophets, what we now call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, just a way to refer to all of the, 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 the um, scriptures that Israel possessed, which we now have as the Old Testament. The law and the prophets, the God's word was the, was the single dominant thing that shaped Israel's understanding of life, faith, God and the universe. It was the single dominant thing that, that shaped Israel's understanding of how they should behave in the world to a degree that we would struggle to comprehend today. We live in a world that has such diverse 
influences upon us and the way we think about those things, that it would be difficult for us to understand how fully shaped the people of Israel were by what we now call the Old Testament. But then so Jesus enters the scene. And Jesus uh, comes declaring that the kingdom of God has come near in his arrival. He, he speaks and acts in ways that demonstrate that he is the hoped for Messiah. He's the one that the, the law and the prophets pointed to, that they, they hoped for. And so even for those who believed in Jesus, the question was, is the Old Testament, is, is the law and the scriptures to be cast aside? Are we done with that? Is it to be replaced? Is it to be overthrown? Are we finished with it? That was the question even for those who believed in Jesus, but it was also the criticism of those who were not believers in Jesus because he seemed to to flout the, the, the understanding of the Jewish laws. He was criticized for not washing his hands properly. He was criticized for, for, for working on the Sabbath. Jesus seemed to disregard in the eyes of the, the strict religious people of his day, he seemed to disregard the the Old Testament law, the law and the prophets. And so the question is, do we cast it aside? Is Jesus suggesting that the Old Testament, that the law and the prophets should be cast aside? And so those that, that believed in Jesus had this question, it was a question that was obvious to them. How now should we think about the world? How now should we think about how we behave? For those that were against Jesus... It was also a question they had, Does he, has he come to try and overthrow our entire worldview? But it's also a question the church has wrestled with. How do we reconcile Jesus with the Old Testament, with the law and the prophets? And so there was a, there's a, at the extreme end of things, less than a hundred years after Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension, there was a man named Marcion, who, who he... he was taught about Jesus, he, he had most of, the, by that stage, the New Testament uh, scriptures and he studied the Old Testament scriptures and, and he just came to the conclusion, these things don't go together. And, and so he essentially started a whole new church um, that we would call the Marcionites now, um, they don't exist anymore but that's what we'd call them, those people back then, that, that believed that the Old Testament God was this cranky, angry God that wasn't the true God and that, that the Father Jesus spoke about was a different God. And, and so there was parts of the New Testament he kind of ripped out as well, the parts that Jesus kind of quoted, Old Testament stuff. But, but he created this idea of Jesus as entering history 2,000 years ago and everything else been thrown out before that. Now that's the extreme end of it, but, but it's a question we all wrestle with. What do we do with the first half of the Bible? And it's actually more than first half on pages, but what do we do with that? What do we do as followers of Jesus with the law and the prophets? Is it to be cast aside? Is it to be replaced? Is it to be diminished? Is it to be overthrown? And so Jesus declares, he says, I have come not to destroy it, but to fill it, fulfill it. Jesus came not to destroy, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so as uh, Veronica read for us, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus' uh, language here is important. The word that that is in the original Greek of this um, recording of Jesus' story, 
for abolish his, and I'm not a Greek expert, but katalisai. But what it means is to destroy, to overthrow, to break up. It's a term that's most commonly used for the demolition of buildings. And so Jesus says, I have not come to demolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to overthrow them. I've not come to destroy all of that revelation that has come from God to his people up until this point. Jesus, as I said in our previous series, Jesus is perfect theology. But Jesus is not a replacement, but a fulfiller of Old Testament theology, of Old Testament understanding of God. And so Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so the word for fulfill here means to complete to fill up, to fill to capacity, to appropriately meet or to satisfy. And so Jesus hasn't come to destroy the Old Testament Scriptures, but He has come to complete them, to satisfy them. And so He goes on to say, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter... Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And, and so in his coming though, Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill, to accomplish, to complete. And so the Old Testament doesn't pass away. We don't, um, though sometimes for brevity, we do have Bibles with just the New Testament in it. And usually the Psalms and Proverbs is thrown in. Um, I don't really understand perhaps why, but cool. Um, but so that's just a you know, nice thing to hand out. But, but, but we don't really have, we're not intended to have scriptures that only begin at the New Testament. They're not thrown out. The, the Old Testament is not cast aside. God's revelation of creation, of the fall, of the, the calling of Abraham to be the, 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 the nation, to, to be the father of the nation through which salvation comes and the giving of the law and Israel's struggle with God and wrestling with that and, and you know, the, the exile and the return to Israel, all of that isn't cast aside in the coming of Jesus. It, it fulfilled complete, satisfied. We don't tear it out of our Bibles, but in fulfilling it, completing it, accomplishing what it spoke of, our application of it is transformed. Jesus said, goes on to say in uh, verse 19, Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so, so Jesus is saying we're still called to embrace these Old Testament scriptures, to teach them and to practice them. But as I said, our, our practice of them is transformed through the lens of Jesus. And so when we look at the Old Testament as followers of Jesus, we need to look at it through Jesus. We need to understand what it means to us now as followers of Jesus, not as ancient people of Israel. And so, for example, the, the Old Testament talks about, it's got all of these laws and regulations about how to sacrifice the, the right type of animal and when to sacrifice the right type of animal and where to sacrifice the right type of animal and who's allowed to sacrifice the right type of animal. And, and, and so there's all this law and regulation about appropriate sacrifice, which is all about the truth that 
sin and wrongdoing needs to be atoned for. Uh, that only blood can atone for the sins of humanity. And so that truth remains in Jesus, that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this sacrifice spoken about in the Old Testament. And so we, 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 we don't cast aside the law, but we understand that in Jesus, sacrifice is fulfilled, it's accomplished, it's completed, it's satisfied in Jesus. And so though we don't cast aside the law, we no longer need to sacrifice animals in a continuing basis because Jesus has fulfilled their purpose. Another example would be the idea of holiness and the Old Testament, the, the Jewish law has all of these rules and regulations around what kind of foods you can eat and can't eat and what kind of ways you need to kill the animals. Uh, if you're eating animals, if you're not vegan or vegetarian, um, you could do that if you wanted to in ancient Israel. Um, but, but how to kill animals if you were going to eat them, what type of animals, how you had to wash your hands on, on what kind of days you could eat, what kind of things. And also there was all these other rules and regulations around purity and you weren't allowed to touch dead people and if you touch the leper, then you're unclean. And there was all these rules and regulations around holiness and cleanliness and being, being pure before God. And so that concept of our, 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 our need to be holy to be pure, to be sanctified, to use a kind of theological word, remains. And, and all of those rules and regulations point us towards that truth. But in Jesus, we're made holy by His sacrifice. Jesus in the New Testament declares all food to be clean. Jesus in the New Testament instead of staying away from those who are sick or unclean, reaches out and clean, cleanses those who are unclean, who heals lepers. And, and so the concept of, of needing to be holy before God remains, but, but Jesus transforms our understanding of it so that we, you know, it's good advice to wash your hands before you eat, but you don't need to go through a particular ceremony to be clean. One of the things I'm grateful for Jesus is, is that we can now uh, eat the meat from a certain animal that goes oink. Um, because I really like bacon. <laughs> but Jesus explicitly in Scripture declares all things to be clean. The Holy Spirit leads Peter to, through, through a series of visions to embrace all these things that he would have, because of God's Word, gone, I have not touched those things and I will never touch those things. But the Holy Spirit declares them to be clean to Peter. And so this idea of ritual, religious cleanliness is replaced by a relationship with God but through the Holy Spirit that makes us clean. And so the Old Testament isn't cast aside but fulfilled, completed accomplished in Jesus and so we look at it through the person of Jesus. But what I want us to capture at the end of this verse is, is really important and we might miss it in all the sense of least and greatest and, and things like that but, but what I want us to capture is Jesus says, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices the laws and commandments and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
So Jesus affirms uh, shaping our life around God's Word, including the Old Testament, but, but He says to both these groups who reject and ignore God's Word and oh, God's commandments, I should say, more specifically, and, and those who embrace it and teach it, He calls them both, what? In the Kingdom of Heaven. And so what I want us to grab is, is though we're, we're, we're intended to, to shape our understanding of the world, life, faith, the universe and God around God's Word, including the Old Testament, we're called to keep the commandments through the lens of Jesus. Commandment keeping is not our means of entering the Kingdom of Heaven. Jesus does not say, this is the bottom line of this verse, Jesus does not say those who set aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly, will be not welcomed in the Kingdom of Heaven. We're not allowed entrance into God's Kingdom, into salvation, into the hope of eternity through commandment keeping. So Jesus has come not to destroy but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Uh, and, and, and so, so much of this understanding of the law and the prophets in, in Jesus' day in Israel was that commandment-keeping was the means of salvation. And, and so, reflecting on this, Jesus goes on to say, you must be more righteous than the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom. That's what it says in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the Pharisees were the champions of this understanding that if we strictly adhere, if we are zealous, if we shape our lives around the single purpose of trying to keep Every law and commandment in the Old Testament, I think the number 613 uh, commandments they'd worked out were in their individual things. If they shaped their life around these things, then they'd enter into salvation. There was a belief in ancient Israel, if, if they could somehow get all of Israel for one day to keep all of the commandments, the Messiah would come and restore Israel. There was this concept, if we would just keep the laws right... That's all that God's waiting for to redeem us. And so this is a shocking claim from Jesus to say that, that there's no way you can enter the kingdom of heaven by any means if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees. It's a shocking claim because the Pharisees were famous for their adherence to the commandments. They were legendary. No one was better at keeping commandments than the Pharisees. And Jesus says, it's not enough. The most, think about the most righteous person that you can think of, the person who embodies living righteously, justly. Jesus says, it's not enough. Your righteousness must surpass the Pharisees to have any hope of entering the kingdom of heaven. And so what is Jesus doing here? Is he saying that you just need to work a lot harder, you need to up the ante? 
you need to dial the meter from 600 laws kept well to 613, maybe make up a few extra laws and keep them as well. What, what is Jesus doing here? Is he saying that, that humanity to enter the kingdom of heaven simply needs to do more and try harder and one day we might have a handful of people that manage to be righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven? Is that what he's saying? Jesus is saying that if your understanding of what it means to enter the kingdom, to enter into salvation, to, to enter into the hope of eternity through Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, if your understanding of that is keeping laws and commandments, then no one is ever going to be good enough. Not even the Pharisees. And so when Jesus says you must be more righteous than the Pharisees, he's talking about a different kind of righteousness altogether. He's talking about a, a different quality of righteousness altogether. It's not the outward righteousness of keeping laws, but, but an inside-out reality. You see, Jesus says we must be more righteous than the Pharisees because the Pharisees had completely missed the point and in Jesus' eyes they weren't at all righteous. We only need to flip over to Matthew chapter 23 verse 25 to 28, to, to see Jesus describe the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees had. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you teachers of the laws, law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin. And so he's saying you do these outward actions of righteousness to the, to the ridiculous level. You've got a little you know, windowsill garden of mint and you make sure you give 10% of that mint to, to God. You've got a little dill bush. Who's seen dill? It's like this, it's kind of like, it's, if you touch it, it almost disappears into the ether. But, but the Pharisees made sure that 10% of their dill went into the temple tre- treasuries of tithe. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, which, you know, so there's this religious ceremonial practice of, oh, I'm washing my dishes so I'm clean. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside will also be clean. Jesus is saying, you're showing to the world that you're trying to be righteous but you haven't even bothered to clean the inside of you. Your righteousness is one of outward signs of works, of trying to, trying to be seen to keep all the rules and regulations and laws but, but inside you're full of disgusting things. You're full of greed and self-indulgence. He goes on in verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you appear full... Sorry, in the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. 
And so those are the kind of people that Jesus is saying we need to be more righteous than. The kind of people who appear on the outside like they're keeping up all the rules and regulations, who are in fact keeping up all the rules and regulations. They're ticking all the boxes, but Jesus is saying it's only skin deep, it's only on the outside. And that was never the point of the law. Jesus doesn't just transform our understanding of what it means, he, he re-centers, re-centers and refocuses us on what it was always meant to be about. It was always meant to be about what was inside us, been demonstrated on the outside. The law was always meant to be about transformed hearts, not mere behavior modification. And so Jesus says, I don't cast aside the law, I don't destroy the law, I fulfill it and complete it and accomplish it. But he also teaches his followers what it looks like for the true purpose of the law to be fulfilled, complete and accomplished in us. It's not about doing more and trying harder to be righteous on the outside, but allowing God to transform us, that, that our hearts would be made righteous, that we would be cleansed, we'd be washed within. And so you must be more righteous than the Pharisees, but in Jesus' eyes, their righteousness is a false righteousness. One of just actions, but of not heart. And so Jesus says, righteous from the inside out is what he wants us to be. He wants to transform us inwardly and so then helpfully for his followers Jesus goes on to describe what he means he he goes through a number of not not the entire list of 613 but he goes through a number of the kind of the laws of the old testament to describe how we should really understand them as followers of Jesus and so in Matthew chapter 5, 21 to 26, he talks about the commandment not to murder. But Jesus says it, it's, it was never about just not killing other people. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with your, his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, uh, which is... Um, an Aramaic term of contempt, uh, my my footnotes tell me, uh, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother uh, has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. And so the law says, do not murder. But Jesus teaches that if our concept of do not murder is simply about, I've managed to not kill anybody today, which admittedly, sometimes that's an accomplishment on some days, But if we think that's what it was about, was simply about not wrongfully taking the life of another person and that was the extent of it, if we think that we've fulfilled the heart of God's Word and law by just not killing other people, then Jesus says we've missed the point. 
It's not about just not murdering. It's about reconciled relationships. It's about the attitude of the heart towards others. If we're people that have not murdered anybody, I've managed to not murder anybody in my entire life, but, but if my heart is filled with rage and anger and desires to kill everybody I see, then, then I'm not really fulfilling the heart of the law in Jesus' eyes. Jesus doesn't just kind of intensify the law. He doesn't kind of lift it up a notch. That's not really what this is about. He's saying it's, it's not out here where the law matters. It's, it's in here, in the human heart. It's not about simply do not murder. It's about Jesus' followers living out lives where relationships are reconciled. Do not murder was a boundary, but we're not meant to just stay on this side of the boundary. We're meant to live a life that, that, that is directed in the complete opposite direction of what murder is. And then Jesus goes on to say, uh, You have heard it said, Do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. <coughs> if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And so Jesus says it's not just about do not commit adultery. It's not just about not sleeping with people you're not meant to sleep with because you're not married to them. Jesus said that's about, that law is about true inner integrity. It's about true disciplining yourself to be an integrous person. And so if I, I'm someone who, who has never slept with someone who's not my wife, but, but my thoughts are constantly filled with lust towards other people and I'm, I'm ogling people with my eyes and I'm indulging in um, you know, illicit material pornography on, on the internet and lusting after that, then, then I've not fulfilled the heart of the law. Jesus is not just trying to make it harder. He's trying to say it's not about just not sleeping around. It's, it's about where's your heart at? Where's your integrity at? Where's your single-minded devotion to your spouse at? Jesus doesn't just make it harder. That's not the point. He makes it inner instead of outer. And Jesus goes on to talk about connected that to divorce. He says, it, is, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And, and so the concept here was that people just thought, well, I can just, if I get sick of my wife, I can write out a certificate, I can move on, and, and then I'm not committing adultery. Because that marriage ended and I've moved on to a next one. And, and I want to say in this space that if you... Uh, are a divorced person, then God has abundant grace for you. It's not about, uh, as we've already said, law-keeping to enter into salvation. But, but Jesus is saying that the whole idea of, uh, elsewhere he says, that Moses permitted divorce, um, who gave the law, that God gave the law to Israel through, because of the stubbornness of the people. And, and Jesus is saying the point wasn't about, you could just write a certificate and get rid of your wife. Um, in those days, the wives had little power to get rid of their husbands, but the reverse would be true today. It's about dedication to the purpose of marriage. That God's intent is that marriage be a lifelong commitment to one another. And so 
God's not, Jesus is not trying to make things harder once again. He's trying to address the inner purpose of the law. Because we can tick the box and say, well, I didn't commit adultery because that divorce was completed first. But, but Jesus is trying to take us 10 steps back and go, but where was your heart in all of that? Where was your priorities in all of that? Jesus goes on to talk about making oaths. And so this is um, another part of the law about, well, what kind of things can you declare upon? And he says, again, you've heard it, that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the, temp- by the earth, for it is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black simply let your yes be yes and your no no anything beyond that comes from the evil one and and so the concept here in the, in in the old kind of idea of of keep your oath was about being truthful but it had become about well the the, the bigger and better and shinier and more holy the thing i make an oath about means more solidly the 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 compulsion to keep it and say you know it's the idea of, well, I swear on my children's lives. And if you say that, then you're like, oh, this person really means it. But what's the flip side of that? If they don't say, I swear on my children's lives, if I don't say, I swear on the throne of God, does it mean that I don't mean it? And so what was intended as, as a, uh, an imperative to be truthful became a way of being untruthful. And so, so Jesus says, not making it harder, but making it more about an inner t- attitude, let what you say be truthful. If you say yes, then let that be a yes. If you say no, then let it be a no. Be truthful and honest. It's a, an inner acting out of righteousness. Then Jesus goes on to talk about retribution. He says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And so the, in the Old Testament law, there was this concept of the level of retribution you took was equivalent to the damage you received. And in our day, um, in our you know, modern day niceties, the idea of like, you knocked out my tooth, so I get to knock out your tooth seems harsh and mean and, 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 and vengeful. But the purpose of the law was actually the opposite. The purpose of the law was to say, if Dan knocks out your tooth, you don't get to go kill him. You pay back just what you received. It was a limit. But Jesus takes it further, but he also takes it deeper. Think about, well, why are we wanting to knock out Dan's tooth anyway? He says, you've heard it said that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you, on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. But if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And, and so the Old Testament law was about, not, about limiting vengeance to repaying in kind. But Jesus takes it further, but he also takes it deeper to to say that his followers aren't meant to be the kind of people that are keeping score. His followers aren't meant to be the kind of people that, well, you know, that person harmed me in this way, so 
I need to even the ledger that his followers are meant to be the kind of people who, who go beyond just limiting vengeance to what they suffered, but to offering the one who harmed them, the other side, the other cheek to be struck as well, to uh, defiantly yet courageously refuse to pay back wrong for wrong. Jesus ups the ante to a degree, but he makes it about our inner being, our, our heart, our reality. And finally, Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you, you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. You've heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. That wasn't what God said. God said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, spirit and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And so the concept had become, well, I need to love my neighbours and I get to define who my neighbours are. So I can tick the box of the law, I love my neighbours and I hate everyone outside that circle. And so Jesus doesn't just intensify the law by saying you need to love the enemies, he he brings it back to its original purpose and says, look, guys, girls, followers of me, of Jesus, you're actually just meant to be about love. Full stop. So love your neighbours and love your enemies and love everyone in between. Jesus doesn't just intensify it, he makes it about an inner reality and our inner reality as followers of Jesus is meant to be love. And so Jesus came not to destroy, to overthrow, to abolish the law and the commandments. He came to fulfill it. He came to accomplish its purpose, to satisfy its demands. So that we're called to to follow the law, but we're called to follow it through the lens of Jesus. Through the lens of grace, knowing that, that we keep the law not out of, and we keep kind of Jesus' instruction, God's instruction in the Old Testament, we, we, we let it shape our life and our behaviour, not out of thinking that that will, is what will get us to heaven, but out of thinking that is what followers of Jesus do. That we are shaped by Him to a degree that, that we're not just box tickers and not murderers, we're, we're people who reconcile relationships, that we're, we're not just those who, who manage to not commit adultery, but we're people who live with true inner, inner integrity. We're not those who kind of lose, use legal processes like uh, divorce um, to avoid uh, seeming disintegrous, but we actually are dedicated to our commitments such as marriage. We're, we're those followers of Jesus that uh, we don't just kind of up the ante on having to make big promises to seem truthful, we let our yes be yes, we're truthful and honest, we let our no be no. As followers of Jesus, we're, we're not people who limit our retribution to an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but we're actually people who turn the other cheek, that we embrace humility, that we, we let, let God, uh, I guess, bear the brunt of the wrongs done to us. 
And we're not just people who love just our neighbours, but we're people who love our enemies too. And then Jesus concludes this, this section of his instruction around what should shape our behaviour and actions and our, our worldview as followers of Jesus with this, with this easy to embrace and easy to implement in our lives statement. Um, this is the easiest command in all of Scripture to follow. Be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I say it's the easiest command in all of Scripture to follow, not because I'm trying to be funny, but because I think it's true. It's true because I know that it's impossible for me to be perfect. See, all the other things I can, I can try and live out in my own life. I can try and not murder people. I can try and not commit adultery. I can try and love my enemies. I can you know, try and turn the other cheek. And, 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 and see, the danger is that even through looking through the lens of Jesus' teaching, we fall back into, I can do this. I can satisfy God. I can be righteous we fall back into being a Pharisee. Yes, we should try to, to, to do these things, but, but God says this, Jesus says the standard is perfection. And so the only way I can possibly ever move anywhere towards perfection is if Jesus, by His Holy Spirit, dwells within me. That if He shapes me, as the Scripture says, from, from glory to glory, into the image of Jesus Christ, His Son, who is also perfect. It's the easiest command in Scripture, and I am trying to be a bit silly with it, of course, but it's the easiest command to follow because we simply can't do it, but by the grace of God. And it's actually our understanding of that reality that should shape our understanding of every other command and instruction in Scripture. Jesus was saying, if you think that you can tick all the boxes and satisfy them and fulfill them, simply by not murdering, by not committing adultery, you've missed the point. This this idea of righteousness that Jesus portrayed isn't like a whitewashed tomb, something that looks beautiful on the outside but's rotten within. It's a it's a righteousness that comes only from God who is perfect that inhabits the inside so that true beauty might radiate out from the centre. This is a, a, a verse in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, in the heart of Jesus' instruction on what it means to be a disciple that, that rocks our understanding of self-righteousness, that undermines any thought that we would return to the ways of the Pharisees and just do more, try harder, tick all the boxes and be righteous. Jesus transforms our understanding of God's commandments from an outward reality to an inner reality, but he also transforms it and shapes it and re-envisage it as something that we can only live out with God dwelling in us and working through us. So Jesus says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
as much as Jesus proclaims that we are not saved through command-keeping. He gives us no justification, no permission to cast off all shackles, in a sense, and indulge in a life of sin. He calls His followers to be radically different, as we talked about last week. He calls His followers to embrace a different set of values to the world, but He calls His followers to be an image of who God is in the world. And God is perfect, and so the standard that we should be satisfied with in our lives is perfection. And pastorally, I know all of you, so I can say this confidently, none of you are there yet. But neither am I. Perhaps I'm the kind of pastor shepherd who's bringing up the rear (laughs) sometimes rather than leading the way. It's easy because it abolishes our self-righteousness, it abolishes our self-sufficiency and turns us back to complete and utter dependence upon God to transform our hearts so that what shows up on the outside is the product of a transformed heart, not someone who's just managed to modify their behaviour. As we begin to play some music this morning... Um, I just encourage you to, to stay in your seat where you are for, for a moment. I'm just going to invite Hannah to play before we sing words, uh, before there's words on the screen or a song to sing. I just want you to take a moment to reflect on, on what Jesus has taught us through that passage this morning. I want you to take a moment to... Um, become aware of where you fall short of perfection. Not just simply where you've overtly transgressed a command from God, but but where in your inner being you've not yet been made perfect. invite you to confess in your heart as I will now as well confess in our hearts as it says elsewhere in scripture it puts it in these words that we've fallen short of the glory of God confess in our hearts that there's spaces where we feel like oh I've ticked that box I'm righteous in the area of not murdering confess that I actually fall short because I harbour anger and hatred in my heart against another human. So I just invite you to confess in your heart before God where you fall short.
For some, that might be specific things. For some, that might be just a general awareness that that we fall short of perfection. Scripture says, if we are faithful to confess, He is faithful to forgive. So I invite you now to just thank God in your heart for His forgiveness. Thank God that through Jesus, His perfection replaces our lack of perfection, that we are set free in the name of Jesus. And finally, I invite you in your heart just to invite the Holy Spirit to come to shape you and to make you holy from the inside out. So Heavenly Father, we confess before you this morning that we are not perfect. We confess that we have felt at times that we have kind of ticked most of the righteousness boxes. We haven't murdered. We haven't committed adultery. Uh, we haven't knocked out anyone's tooth. We, we haven't gone beyond uh, appropriate vengeance. We've kind of only done what they really deserve, Lord. And, uh, and then we felt like we've, we've been righteous before you because we just there's things that we haven't done, Lord. But, but we confess before you this morning that, that in our hearts we are not yet perfect. And so we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace, but we also invite you, our great and awesome God, to come and shape us. That we would be a people of reconciled relationships, of integrity, of dedication to commitments, of honesty and truth, of love for all, that we would be shaped not just to tick the outward expression of your word, but to be shaped inwardly by your word. We pray that you would come and transform us this morning by the blood of Jesus, in the power of your Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you've been blessed and encouraged by this message, we'd love you to become a part of the Aspaptist family. Log on to ycbc.church to find out more.